Um, if you're a guest, we are glad that you're here. Um, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and so we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin turning to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verses 23 through 33, and that, that's the passage we're going to study this morning. Every Sunday morning that we gather together, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture that we study together. And so it'll be helpful if you bring your Bible uh, and follow along with us. If you happen to be here without a Bible, um, hopefully there's one on the pew back in front of you. It's a black Bible, and it looks like this. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab this and turn to page 828, and that is where uh, you can follow along the passage that we're going to read. I don't have any further introduction, so it's time to read the passage. <laughs> Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, Sadducees come to Jesus Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's, let's pray together before we look at these verses. Father, as we gather this morning together, we come to, to sit under your word, and we ask that you would, as we study these verses together, grant us full persuasion and assurance both of the infallible truth of your word but also of the divine authority of this word. This is your word. And so we pray that, that these might come to our hearts by the work of your spirit, bearing witness with our, in our hearts with your word. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there's three points that we're going to look at this morning as we work through. There's, there's three uh, points to, that, that I see here to understand what's going on in this passage. And so point one we'll see there in verse 23. More opponents, uh, we'll see that this group of, of opponents come to Jesus. Then second, we'll see uh, an, an unusual question or an unusual situation in question there in verses 24 through 28. They, they come to Jesus with this question, this, this hypothetical that they create, and they ask him a question. And then we'll see finally verses 29 through 33, Jesus resolves the, the question, answers the question, and resolves the issue. Um, and so, so that's, that's, that's our outline, and that's how we'll work through these verses together. So let's start there, verse 23, more opponents. 
And so, so they come to, to Jesus with Moses, right? The first, author of the first five books. So they come to him with, with a teaching from Moses. And they're referencing a, a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And specifically, you can look at verses 5 through 10. But, but this is a provision in the law that Moses gives. It's called the, the leveret marriage or, or the leveret vow. And, and this provision in Deuteronomy 25, what, what it requires is that when a brother... So, so, so there, there's a man and his wife, and he passes away without providing children for his wife and his namesake. Well, then the brother of the deceased is required to provide offspring for his sister-in-law. And, and, and the whole point is for the, the continuation of the family line, the, the passing down of the inheritance. That was the provision. Now, I know we hear that, and that's like, that's so weird. But, but that's the provision because of the role of the inheritance and, and the family line. In fact, it's, it's what we see at work in the book of Ruth. Do you remember when Ruth goes to Boaz? She, she goes to Boaz and says, please marry me. And Boaz just says, wait, there's, there's one closer than I who can redeem you. So he has to go into town and say, well, hey, hey, here's the, this opportunity that you have to, to marry someone. The guy says, well, I'll take the land of, of my deceased relative. He says, well, with it comes Ruth. And he says, well, never mind, I don't want that. It's because the, the, the provision was there was someone closer than Boaz who had an opportunity to, to, to fulfill this, this duty. And so Moses uh, encodes this in Deuteronomy 25, but it, it's, in, in, it's in, in existence before Moses because if you read Ex, or Exodus chapter, or Genesis chapter 38, Genesis 38, there's a man named Onan who's judged by God for failing to fulfill this vow. So, so the Sadducees come to Jesus with this teaching. Now, it, it, should, it should be noted that most scholars at this point, at the time of Jesus, believe this isn't really practiced. At this point, there's, there's the, the, the brothers or have the opportunity to, like we saw in Ruth, that I, can, I cannot fulfill this obligation. So, so it's not really practiced. Nevertheless, the Sadducees come to him, pointing back to Moses and saying, if Moses said this, let us create this hypothetical situation. Okay, so they come to him with a teaching from Moses, and they create this hypothetical situation. Verse 25, now, so we got this deal with Moses. Now, there were seven brothers among us. Now, again, the, the way this question word is worded makes it seem like this is a specific situation that they're aware of. So they say, among us. Now, I find that hard to believe, right? I, it seems more likely there's coming to Jesus. Maybe you've heard this. Hey, well, someone told me, or I heard Right? I make it sound like it's legitimate when, when there's no really substance in reality. I think they're saying, hey, there's someone among us. Yeah, let us tell you about this, this, this family situation that we know about. We heard about this family. Right? So, so I, think they're just, I don't think there's a real situation. I think this is hypothetical, but they're using it, at coming across as, hey, this, this is a real situation. We know about it. But listen to the situation. I mean, th- I think this proves how ridiculous it is and how impossible it is to have happen. First... Seven brothers, the first married and died, and having no offspring left, his wife to his brother. So then, so too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Now, someone say, of course she died. Right then, what, what has she been through? Of course she died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? So the situation is simply this. Here's a man who dies without children. His second brother, number two, is unable to provide the woman offspring. Then he dies. The third brother, unable to provide offspring for the woman. Then he dies. Fourth brother, unable to provide offspring for the the woman. Then he dies. Fifth brother, sixth brother, all the same. So you have seven brothers who all married the same woman, who, who all were unable to provide offspring for their children. Now, I thought it was fascinating that one of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, says this is definitely not a real situation because brothers four, five, and six would have never gone through with this. After three brothers died, they're like, no, 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 thank you. We're going to pass. Right? No one in the right mind would continue this. But 
They lay out this scenario, and they do so in order to ask the question that they do in verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife is she going to be? Whose wife is she in the resurrection? Now again, their, their question is intended to trap Jesus, right? Because these are, these are Jewish leaders, and, and their question assumes a, a stance against polygamy, and so they're forcing Jesus, trying to force Jesus into a no-win situation. Either you say, you're right, that's ridiculous, there is no resurrection, or she's going to be married to all of them, and she's polygamous in heaven, in the resurrection. That, that's, that's what they see, because they say, here, here are seven brothers who are married to one man. In the resurrection, they, surely she can't be married to seven men. That's against God's law. So, so they want to say, well, the resurrection is ridiculous. God wouldn't command what he did in Moses to then raise all of them to a polygamous relationship. And so, so that's the question that they're asking, and, and, and that's, that's the, the motivation behind it. They're trying to trap him, just like the one about paying taxes to Caesar. It's intended to force Jesus to answer one of two ways, both of which are problematic for him. As someone who claims to be a teacher from God. Okay, so, so that's the unusual situation in the question. It's about the resurrection. So let's look at the resu- resolution. Notice how Jesus answers them, verses 29 through 33. So we see the answer here in this last section, verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So stop right there. Notice what Jesus says. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong for two reasons. One, you don't know the scriptures. Two, you don't know the power of God. And we'll look at those each in a second. But, but just notice the lack of ambiguity in this response from Jesus. You're wrong. You're wrong. So, some translations say, you go astray or you are deceived. But, but what, however you translate it, this response from Jesus clearly communicates the same point. You are not right. There is right and there is wrong, and you are wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. What you're assuming about the resurrection, about marriage and afterlife, it's, it's wrong. There's true and there's wrong, and you are wrong. And, so, and I think we, we can learn something from that in saying there are things, friends, that are true and things that are false. That there are realities. There is absolute truth. And when someone says, well, I don't agree with that, we have to be able to say, you're wrong. Jesus says, you're wrong. Now, of course, there are things that aren't as clear. Maybe we, maybe we should have some, some room to say, well, it seems to say this is what God says, but there are certain things where we should be able to say with confidence and love to our inquisitor, that's wrong. And it's not on our own authority, but it's on the authority of God's word. Jesus is going to teach what is true based on God's word. And so I think we can learn here from Jesus. But, but so Jesus addresses these two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so he addresses these, I think, in reverse order. So first, there in verse 30, I think he addresses, you don't know the power of God. So look at verse 30. After he says, you're wrong, you don't know the power of God or the scriptures. Verse 34, in the resurrection, they, talking about this, this woman and, and these brothers, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so in his answer to their question about the seven brothers and one woman, he doesn't get caught up in answering the specifics. 
He doesn't get caught up in, well, whose brother is the wife? Rather, Jesus shows the Sadducees their misunderstanding about the resurrection itself. It doesn't matter who's married to whom on earth, he says. It doesn't matter because they neither marry nor are given marriage in the resurrection. Now, this whole context takes place, the, the phrase is in the resurrection. They're talking about resurrection life. It's not at the resurrection. Sometimes we'll read a, read a, a verse that talks about, now, what's going to happen at the resurrection? They, often that's talking about the, the final judgment. This is in the resurrection. They're talking about life in heaven, in the resurrection reality. And their question is, whose wife is it? And he says, in the resurrection, they, they ne- neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And the point he makes, clearly, is that marriage... Human marriage, the institution of marriage, is for this world only. That's the point he makes. It will not be in heaven. Therefore, their hypothetical situation, the the woman won't be the wife of any of the brothers. She won't be anyone's wife in heaven because there won't be marriage like earth, like on earth in heaven. It's irrelevant. Their question is irrelevant because marriage will not occur in the afterlife. So, so, so how does this truth show that the Sadducees don't know the power of God? Why does Jesus say you don't know the power of God? Their problem is that they deny a resurrection that they don't even understand. They're wrong about the resurrection. They don't understand it because their assumption about the resurrection that they deny is wrong. Oftentimes people, they'll say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. Well, they don't know the God of the Bible. They're denying a God they don't know. This is what the Sadducees are doing. They assume what the resurrection will be like. And Jesus is saying, you don't know the power of God in the resurrection. Their, their question assumes that everything's going to be the same as life before in the resurrection, that the resurrection is just like before. And he's saying that undermines the power of God. It's going to be a totally new experience, a new heavens, a new earth. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be if you're married on earth, you're married in heaven. If you've got the job on earth, you've got the job in heaven. He says it's not like that. They're mistaken about life in the resurrection. He means they don't understand the ability or the power of God to transform the human experience. They don't, they don't know that life in the resurrection will be radically different from life in the present. And the way that Jesus drives this home specifically is by giving them an analogy. You're, they're neither going to marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's the comparison he uses. Now notice first, he doesn't say that, that humans will become angels in the resurrection. He doesn't say that. He says they'll become like, you'll be like angels in heaven. His point is that in the resurrection, humans will become less like humans and more like angels, specifically in regards to marriage. That's the context. He doesn't say, well, you'll be like angels in every aspect. No, no, no. They're talking about marriage. He says, no, 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 there's no, resurrect, there's no marriage in the resurrection, but you will be like angels in heaven. And I think what Jesus means here, if we just stop and think about human marriage, think about the purposes of human marriage. I mean, first and foremost, we find in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the first man and woman and gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply. The creation of marriage is for procreation, to to populate the earth with little image bears and to spread and populate. That's the primary, that is A, not the A primary purpose of marriage. I mean, there's one reason why Christians believe that true marriage can only ever be between a man and a woman. Because the pattern, male-female, is part of the created order. That's why God created man and woman. One of the primary purposes was for procreation. And you can't have that apart from male-female coming together in marriage. And so through human marriages on earth, God institutes it so that husbands and wives, generally, there's exceptions, but generally have children and establish families. 
That's one of the primary purposes for marriage. Another primary purpose would be companionship. Adam was alone. It was not good he was alone, so the Lord makes a helper fit for him. So he's not alone. He's not lacking, but is complete. And so human marriage affords men and women the opportunity to experience an intimate relationship on earth that's unique, unlike any other human relationship. Now, there are more purposes of marriage, but just think about those two reasons for human marriage on earth. Angels don't have those same needs. Angels have no need for procreation. We, we don't know about families of angels, mothers and fathers. No, we just know about angels. And the point Jesus is making is simply that in contrast to the frailty and the needs of human existence in this life on earth, Christians in the life to come will be more like the angels in heaven. That is, they'll be like angels in that they don't marry or have children. There's no need for populating heaven with people. For the Sadducees to think that life in the resurrection will be more of the same as life here shows their lack of knowledge regarding the power of God. Now one caveat just to make here, just because Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven doesn't mean there will be no human relationships in heaven. So maybe, maybe you hear this and you're married, or maybe you've lost a spouse and you think, well, wait a minute, am I not going to know my spouse in heaven? That's not the point. It's not what he says. Human relationships will continue to exist in heaven, right? Human relationships are part of, of how we bear God's image. It will continue forever. And I would say, in fact, you will know your spouse better than you ever knew them here on earth or ever could know them here, here on earth. I think in, in heaven, human relationships will be to, to the nth degree of, of communion and fellowship. And so the reunion of husbands and wives in the resurrection will lead to greater joy and fulfillment than can ever be imagined here. So, so don't be afraid, but recognize that marriage as we know it here on earth will not exist. In fact, I, I performed a wedding just a few days ago, and what I say at every, every wedding is that every human marriage is intended to point to the relationship between Christ and the church. That's, Roman, or that's Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And since that's the case, when the ultimate marriage is consummated, when Christ and his bride are together, and the feast of the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb is, is entered into for eternity, there will be no need for human pointers anymore. Because the marriage will have come, and they don't need any pointers because we will all be with him. And so there's no need for human marriage there because we will all be the bride, perfectly in fellowship with one another and with Christ. And so it should, it should give us joy at the, at, the, at the thought or the prospect of human relationships in heaven because there won't be sin to hinder your relationship in heaven. You have relationships that are, that are perfect and full of fellowship. Perfect understanding. No, no emojis that can convey false thoughts. No, no trying to read between the lines. No, no judging by tone or a look. What's that person thinking? No, no, there will be perfect fellowship. And that's what we await and like the angels in heaven, we will be primarily focused on God in whose presence we will dwell. In the resurrection life, like the life of angels, we will find our great purpose and center in communion with Him. And so the Sadducees are wrong in their assumption. They don't know the power of God. In fact, they probably say, well, well resurrection doesn't happen. God can't do that. They don't know the power of God either to resurrect or to transform human experience in 
the resurrection. But, but that's not the only problem Jesus takes with them. He says, also, you don't know the scriptures. It's not just the power of God. You also don't know the scriptures. Look how he addresses that in verse 31 and 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? I love it when Jesus says that. He's talking to these religious experts, experts in the law. He says, haven't you read? Of course they've read. They haven't understood. He's saying, haven't you read what was said to you by God? Now notice, he's going to quote Exodus, and he's telling Sadducees, this was said to you. God spoke to you through the scriptures. I think that tells us something about the nature of scripture. But he wants them to know, you have no excuse to deny a resurrection because God spoke to you. In Exodus, verse 32, he continues, and he's quoting Exodus chapter 3. He says, haven't you read what God said? Quote, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so in order to make this second point, Jesus aims to show the Sadducees from the scriptures, from their scriptures, that in fact the dead are raised or there's life after death. And he goes back to the incident from Exodus chapter 3, which is where Moses encounters the burning bush, back in, in, in Exodus chapter 3. And in that passage, Moses, God calls Moses through this, this burning bush. Moses says, I, I got to go check that out. He goes to the burning bush, and, and it's when he says, well, well go to my, I'm going to send you. He says, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? He says, I, tell them that I am sent you. But what, what, G, what the Lord says to Moses at the very beginning, before he gets to the I am statement, he says, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And he said, this is what he says to Moses at the beginning of this, this interaction at the burning bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's the identification that Jesus picks up on, where God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus quotes that because in his mind, that proves that God is the God of the living. And there's justification for believing that the dead are not dead, but are alive. Since they're dead, I mean, as, as Moses is on the scene before the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead. They've, they've, earthly, they've died. Their earthly bodies have been laid to rest. And Jesus is saying... That for God to say, I am their God, means they still exist. That they're not just obliterated or, or unconscious. They still exist. He is their God. For him to be their God, they have to be people. And the logic, I would say, is straightforward. When the Lord appears to Moses, they're, all, they're not living in their physical bodies. They're gone physically, yet the Lord can still say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus makes the point, if there was no resurrection, as the Sadducees believed... Why would God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Rather, if there was no resurrection, wouldn't it make sense for the Lord to say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now I want to be your God, right? That would, the, the, the change in tense would make a totally different point. And Jesus wants to say that tense is intentional. He doesn't say, I was their God. He says, I am their God. And the fact that God refers to himself as their God in the present means that though dead, the patriarchs are still in relationship with him. Which means that death is not the end. Do you see? I am their God. Even after they die, I am still their God. They are still my people. Jesus argues, as one commentator puts it, that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have passed into oblivion, as the Sadducees believe, then God's description of himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob conveys nothing about his power to save people. 
And indeed, this title, the God of, is a mockery of any hope that God deserves in the trust of his followers. The Sadducees, their issue is much bigger than the resurrection. They've missed the nature of God himself. What I mean when I say that is the nature of God's covenant relationship with, with his people ensures that there's life after death, that death isn't the end. When God says, I will be their God and, and they will be my people, that's a, that's a promise that the relationship between God and his covenant people does not end at death. It continues beyond the grave. In fact, it must because of God's own nature and character. If he makes a promise, I will be your God and you'll be my people, if that, if that promise ended at death, well, what good is God? Anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. And Jesus wants them to know, you're missing the nature of the covenant-keeping God. I mean, think about it. If, could this living, saving, covenant-keeping God establish a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only to allow it to be terminated in death? To be the God of implies a caring, protecting relationship which is as permanent as the living God who makes it. With unsurpassable brevity, this sentence says that faith in God includes the certainty of conquering death. If there's no life after death, then all of God's promises are temporal. Abraham, Moses, and David, think about it, they all receive promises. All of them, all the patriarchs, they received promises, and these promises were not fully fulfilled when they closed their eyes in death, and yet they died in hope. Not because someone someday, sometime later, would experience the fulfillment, but because they themselves would experience the fulfillment. They're looking for a city, Hebrews would talk about. If there's no life after death, all the promises of God that have, been, that have sustained his people throughout the ages are null and void. If there's no life after death, if God's promises can't reach beyond the grave, all of them are canceled at death. And God's covenant promise to save his people would not be of any significance if it were able to be overcome and shattered by death. As one author says, it would be a tawdry salvation which lasted only for this life. If the promises of God only last this life, it's just one of many salvations that you should choose from. But that's the point Jesus is making. They're wrong. God's commitment to his servants, I am their God, is itself adequate proof of the resurrection. And so Jesus makes a point about the scriptures. It's a point about the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures as a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He's the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who made promises and would see through, see them through to the end. And in fact, the fact that Jesus is on the scene preaching this to them, teaching this to them, he is going to be the culmination, the fulfillment of this promise with his death and resurrection. And so Matthew concludes this interaction. We don't, he doesn't say how the Sadducees respond. In fact, as I thought about it, I don't know how they could have responded. What do you say in response to that? But what Matthew does say is that the crowd, when they heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at the wisdom and, and the insight of this man. And so we, we leave this passage. Jesus is left alone for a moment but it won't be long before another group, in fact, the Pharisees again come to him with another question, which Lord willing will look at next week. But, but I just want to close with three points of application from this, from, this, from this passage. 
And the first one, it's not the main point, but I, so it's a point that, that I think should be heeded, which is simply this. Make the most of your marriage now. If you're married, make the most of your marriage now. Now, I realize some of you are happily married, and the thought of not being married for all of eternity has, has the potential to sadden you. I mean, I get that. But the point of application that I make here is that marriage on earth is temporary. It's temporary. It's not eternal. Which means whether you're happily married or whether your marriage is currently facing difficulty, the point of application is that time is ticking on your opportunity to love your spouse. And so if you're here and you and your spouse are alive and both married, commit to one another and invest in one another and love one another because your time is ticking. Make the most of your marriage. Love your spouse. Thank God for the institution of marriage. Find ways to express your love and to prioritize your spouse. Because in this room, there are maybe a dozen who have lost a spouse. And they, their, their clock has run out on loving a particular spouse. And they would tell you, I mean, I, I've done funeral after funeral, and every time that there's a spouse left behind, no spouse comes to the end of their life, loses their spouse, no spouse left behind comes to the end of their life and says, I regret loving my spouse too much. Never. It's often quite the opposite. Time after time, whether it's been a 10-year marriage or a 50-year marriage, at the funeral, the, the spouse left behind says, I wish I had more time. I wish I'd have told them again. I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have done that. And I'm just telling you, if you're here and you're alive and your spouse is alive, make the most of your marriage. God has given you this institution to make much of him. So love your spouse. There's a day coming when human marriage will be no more. And in light of that day, love your spouse here and now. And repent of not doing so the way you ought to have. And if you're a young person or you're single, you long to be married, have this shape your expectation. You're to love your spouse as hard and as long as you live, but, but the time is set when it will not be anymore. Second point of application, know the Scriptures. I think we see from the Sadducees here, they, they base their thinking about the resurrection on the Scriptures. They, they, they know the first five books of the law. But although they base their line of reasoning on Scripture, they've not taken up a genuinely scriptural position. Do you know that? That, that you, can, you can know the Bible and you can have a verse and claim to be my thinking is based off a verse while still being unbiblical. Did you, maybe you just need to know that. And the solution, the, the way for wisdom to, to know, is to know the Scriptures. The, the Sadducees are in error, claiming to believe the Bible. As one commentator notes, they did not really know the Scriptures. It's one thing to be able to quote passages that one thinks support one's preconceived position, and quite another to understand and follow the teaching of Scripture. To understand and yield oneself to what the Scripture says is quite different from quoting passages in the way the Sadducees were doing. And so I, I simply want to encourage you, Christian, there's a need for you to know the Scriptures. As a Christian, you ought to give yourself to the study of the Scriptures, and not just this verse or that verse, but, but the Scriptures, the whole story, the big picture, and, and how the parts fit together. As our culture becomes increasingly resourced in biblical resources, we are also becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. And as that happens, 
It's becoming more and more common for a single verse to be used by skeptics or Muslims or Mormons or someone use a single verse and then Christians' entire worldview is shaken because one verse taken out of context can shatter a foundation. That should not be. We ought to know the scriptures. There are fundamental theological commitments that God has revealed to us in his word, basic beliefs that the scriptures teach. And these basic beliefs ought to be understood and believed by all Christians. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What are the scriptures? What is, how does someone come to know Jesus? How does someone get saved? These are basic things that I'm afraid Christians don't know the answer to as they ought. And so my encouragement is to know the scriptures. I mean, just the other day, here's one example. And it's not about anyone in here. But I was at a funeral and I heard someone say, so it was the funeral of, of a believer, someone who knew the Lord, died. And someone speaking about the person, of course the person is in a better place, but the person said that the deceased now had a new body. And that's just not true. The scriptures don't teach that when you die you get a new body. That, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, you're in a better place. There's a day coming when all who have died in Christ will have new bodies, but, but that's yet to come. That's at the resurrection. Right now, those who have died in faith have departed their earthly bodies, and they are with the Lord, yes, 100%. They are with the Lord, but they don't have bodies. That's coming at the resurrection. Right now, there are no resurrection bodies inhabited by the saints who have closed their eyes in death. They're with the Lord. Their existence is in the presence of the Lord. Certainly, the Bible makes that clear, but there's a waiting for the resurrection. There's a resurrection still to come, and that's just one example, but, but there are basic things in understanding what the Bible teaches that we ought to know for our own sake, but also for the sake of, of, of those that we would reason with or teach. We ought to learn from the mistake of the Sadducees and aim to know the Scriptures. And there's no lack of resources. Come by my office. I'll be able to provide you with more than you could ever ask or imagine. Any topic? Come on, I've got a book for that. Come on. But finally, last point of application, this is the main point. Know the power of God and the hope of the resurrection. I think this passage instructs us and encourages us with the power of God and the hope of resurrection. Listen to the words of, of, of J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop from, from the 19th century. He says, perhaps we're often tempted to doubt the truth of a resurrection and a life to come. Maybe that's, that's true, but here's what he says. Unhappily, or unfortunately, it's easy to hold truths theoretically and yet not realize them practically. There are few of us who would not find it good to meditate on the mighty truth which our Lord here unfolds and give it and give to it a prominent place in our thoughts. Let us settle it in our minds that the dead are in one sense still alive. From our eyes they've passed away and their place knows them no more, but in the eyes of God they live and will one day come forth from their graves to receive an everlasting sentence. Happy is he who can say from his heart the words of the creed, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This passage teaches there the power of God, and the scriptures teach that there is a hope of the resurrection. There is a future hope. And so for those of you who, who, who have lost loved ones, for those of you who have said goodbye to those that you dearly love, 
you ought to be encouraged by the power of God and the hope of resurrection. To depart this life in faith is to be with Christ. To depart this life in faith is to remain within the strong covenantal relationship with the Lord. To, to die is to still have the Lord as your God. Take heart. Though from our eyes they've passed away, and though their place knows them no more, in the eyes of God they are still alive. They still live, and they're awaiting the day of resurrection. It's encouragement to those who have lost loved ones, and, and, and may that be an encouragement to you. But it's not just for those who've lost loved ones. It's for all of us. Believer, do you know there is a resurrection hope that's coming? It's coming. There's more to life than here now. There's joys here. There's sorrows here. It's a mixed bag here. There's a resurrection hope that ought to motivate and provoke us to live godly lives here, to persevere here and now by faith. We live in light of that future hope. Titus 2, listen to what, how Titus encourages the Christians. How Paul encourages the Christians in Titus 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, doing what? waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we live lives now training to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live godly lives, awaiting the appearing of the Lord to save us and to raise us and to, to fully initiate and fulfill salvation, our inheritance, life with him. The Christian hope isn't what we can see. I, I imagine the Sadducees would say, I've never seen a, a dead person raised. God can't do that. The Christian hope isn't in what we can see. The Christian hope is in the God who makes and keeps his promises. And he has promised not only in the negative that death will not separate us from his love, Romans 8, but also in the positive, whoever believes in Christ will have what kind of life? Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. What does that mean other than there's a resurrection and that we will be with him forever? Eternal means eternal. And the promise of the triune God to his people is that he will always be our God and that we will always be his people, come what may, death notwithstanding. Let's pray as we close.